Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider, presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by Evan Grant. Hello. Hello. How are you? Holy cow. Calm down, Evan. Calm down. I'm just excited to be here. Did I jump the gun? Yeah, a little bit. And uh, please, put your, put your gun down. Uh, and also joined by David Moore. Hi, David. Kevin, if I may peel back the curtain a bit here. Yeah. I'm not real optimistic for how this podcast is going to go today, <laughs> given this is the fifth take just to get Evan to say hello. Uh, you know, and, and then when he says he's screaming it. Oh, my God. He's screaming. Just just talk naturally into the microphone, Evan. Well, I know no, this is- not talk naturally. We've, yeah. we've, we've- I've got a lot of pent up energy after <laughs> waiting for you to um, do whatever it is you have to do every week with your with okay. your computing machine. Okay. That's true. You you very much had tiny voice when we uh, first started going through this. Time. Uh, I, I know I did, but Evan's trying to make up for it now. So Evan, back away from the microphone, okay? Uh, Something just, we never thought we'd say. A little back bit. Back away from the mic. Yes, exactly. <laughs> All right, uh, let's move on to things that are actually interesting that are happening. Uh, the Mavericks <laughs> played their first uh, game against the Suns in this semifinal series, and boy, did that not go well. Um, it started out poorly, and it kind of went from there uh, for the Mavs. Uh, they came out sloppy. Luka made uh, several turnovers. He uh, had way too many for the game, uh, and uh, they, they couldn't defend. They couldn't do anything. Basically, it looked like uh, – the, the series against the Clippers, uh, at least the, the last four games uh, of that series, uh, last year in the playoffs, uh, all the things that we thought they had corrected, they're playing better defense. Uh, they had uh, more players involved in the offense. Jalen Brunson was really a standout, of course, in the series against the Jazz. Spencer Dinwiddie struggled in that series, but he's been a, a good player since his acquisition in the big trade uh, that sent Chris Porzingis to the to the Wizards. But now it looked like a complete flip-flop of all that. Uh, now they don't have a rim protector. They, they can't stop DeAndre Ayton, uh, and, the, and the Suns just do pretty much whatever they want to do. So, David, uh, tell me, uh, is there any hope for the Mavericks in this series after watching that first game in the uh, 121-114 loss? Well, to me, it looked like a franchise that won a playoff series for the first time in 11 years. Felt pretty good about themselves, a good young team that felt it's on the rise um, and is not totally locked in for the intensity it sees against a team that went to the finals last year and is committed to getting back there again this year and winning it. So it it was a little unsettling to see how far behind they fell early. But to me, this game really wasn't surprising at all. I, I didn't see any way... Uh, if you're if you're counting trying to get the Mavericks to seven wins or four wins in this series, I didn't think there was any way they would win the first game of this series. Um, you know, Phoenix having gone through that run to the finals last year before losing to Milwaukee, uh, taking care of business in the first round and just waiting for this a home game, uh, I, I thought they would jump all over you know the Mavericks from the start, and, and I think this is just something a young team faces that hasn't been through this before. Uh, And and I'm not saying they were overconfident, but they had to feel a little bit good about themselves about the first time in 11 years getting to the second round, right? And and I just think that uh, um, they just weren't ready for the intensity uh, that this next level brings. And 
I, I think they had the the welcome to the second round last night, and I would expect uh, the, the second game uh, tomorrow night to be very, very good. I think it's going to unfold much differently. And so I, I would not read too much into how they lost last night. But it's going to depend. Let's see how they respond in, in this game, too. If they respond the way I would anticipate – I think everyone will feel better about this being the the close competitive series that a lot of people thought it would be going in. I thought the difference this time, though, you know, when they lost the first game against the the Jazz in the first round, uh, in that game, they got into the lane. They did the things they wanted to do. The shots just weren't falling uh, in in that game. And so I thought that there was every reasonably they could come back and, and win that series, which, of course, they did. In this game, uh, in the first game against the, the Suns, you know, Brunson just did did basically nothing. He did none of the things uh, that he did in the first round because, because, frankly, the Suns' defense is just so much better than the Jazz. Yeah. You know, the Jazz's defense is all Rudy Gobert. You know, mm-hmm. they, they funnel everybody to Rudy and hope that he blocks all the shots, which, you know, he basically does. Uh, but they were still able to get into the lane. They had the most difficult time just even getting into the lane, uh, you know, on Monday night. Uh, and, and that is Spencer Dinwiddie's game. You know, if he's not doing that, he's really not very effective. He's just not a consistent enough shooter from the outside to do that. So uh, th- they have to get those two guys going. Uh, between Dinwiddie and Brunson last night, they were, let's see, six, let's see, let's do some quick math here. They were nine of 24 uh, for 21 points. Uh, that's not going to do it. Uh, that that three-guard lineup essentially is their calling card now. That's that's who they have become. Uh, since the trade of Chris Dasperzingas, um, but last night <clears throat> or Monday night, uh, they you know DeAndre Ayton just ate them alive, uh, especially in the first half when he had 19 points, um, and they they simply had no answer for that. They they couldn't stop him. Uh, and that's uh, and you know it's a different game. They they play a mid range game. Uh, the Suns do, and they play it very well. Uh, and uh, the Mavericks were trying to trade three pointers with them. Uh, they, they were successful to a certain extent, uh, but they ran the offense so poorly, uh, otherwise, uh, they just couldn't keep up. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of, and to me, this, this is true and why the, the, the Mavericks have hope is that if you step back and I hear a lot of people say, yeah, but you look at these two teams, who is the best player going on the floor on any given night? It's Luka Doncic. And, mm-hmm. and I agree with that. Um, and that as long as you have Luka Doncic and the way this team has played, most nights you will always give yourself a chance to win. But my rebuttal to that would be, okay, who are the second, third, and fourth best players on the floor every night you tip off in this series? And those three are all Phoenix Suns mm-hmm. uh, in whatever order you want to put them. But Booker, Aiton, and Paul uh, are the second, third, and fourth best players in this series. I think so, I throw Bridges in there as well. Well, and, by, and now you you get to the point of, well, is Bridges also – look, um, you know, Dorian Finney-Smith has gotten a lot of uh, accolades for how his game has improved and how important he is to this team. And I agree completely, but – He's a light version of Bridges, right? Yeah. Bridges gives you all that and a little bit more. So and a little bit more on offense, too. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that, um, you know, that's just the reality of it, how this stacks up from a talent standpoint. Uh, 
it, it there is a smaller margin for which the Mavericks can win every night than there is Phoenix because Phoenix has the second, third, and fourth best players in this series. Uh, they're a better all around team. Uh, you know, we'll talk about the defense here. You know, a little bit. Um, but you know, Phoenix, I think now is what it's either. I think it's seven consecutive postseason series where they've shot games where they've shot 50% or more, yeah. which I think ties an NBA record. So they'll be going for the NBA record on Wednesday night. Uh, as good as Dallas is defensively, um, they're going to have to find a way uh, to impede the Suns more. You know, the, the Suns are just on a stretch, right? You know, on a run right now. But again, that changes very quickly in the playoffs. People always talk about momentum in the playoffs. That can change in one game. That can change in one half. It can change in one quarter. So, uh, and and if you're Dallas and you're going into the practice today, what is Jason Kidd telling them? Look, you got knocked back on your heels early. You weren't ready for the intensity. But what happened at the end of the game? Look how close you got. Look how you started to wear on them. You started to find your footing. Just carry that over. So I... I I would I would be very surprised if game two resembled in any way, shape, or form what we saw in game one. Well, let's hope so to at least make this a series. I don't you know, I, I picked the the Suns to win in seven. I just couldn't I couldn't see a way that the Mavericks are gonna win this series. Um uh, and I think I think if it got to six or seven games, I think that most fans would would take that. Uh I think they would say, well, they got past the first round, they they took the best team in the NBA to six or seven games. That's pretty good. That's a nice stepping stone. Now that now they need to add another piece here or there, and and maybe uh, they can make a, a a bigger move next season. And I and I think that would be that would be good. But we'll we'll see what they can do, whether they can do that or not. It was just so funny watching Chris Paul last night, who basically turns the you know the game over to Devin Booker uh, for the most part, and then he'll assert himself. Somebody will slap a ball away. It's almost like. Don't mess with him because if you slap the ball away from him, you do something, you put a little extra defense on you. It's, it's like playing guys in the park. Then they come back and then they just, they're all over you. He made every single shot after somebody messed with him. You know, I was just like, he's not trying to assert himself here. Don't try to, to, to big time this guy. You know, he's just such an unbelievable player. Uh, and he always just seems to rise to the level that he needs to. Uh, yeah, and I'm not sure there's a better fourth quarter player in the league right now than than Chris Ball consistently. And you know, here, here's the other side of this: as you were talking, Dallas can't afford to fall behind like it did in this game and play, uh, you know, play from behind all night. I mean, that that's a given. But the other thing is, you know, what I think Phoenix has now won nine straight or ten straight against Dallas. Yeah, and. What's the other pattern? We've seen Dallas actually lead in the fourth quarter and lose those leads because Phoenix is so good uh, in the stretch uh, because of Chris Paul. So you can't fall behind early, but even an eight to ten point lead in the in the fourth quarter against this team, especially on the road, uh, isn't a given either. So Dallas is in a as we said, it's just the, the Dallas is. Look, the bottom line is Dallas is not as good of a team as Phoenix. No. And and for them to win this series, uh, Luka's going to have – I mean, you saw that last night. Luka has a 45-point game, and really they're never even in the game. Right. So that tells you what this, how far off this team is and how everything has to go right for them. Uh, Luka has to continue to play at this level. Brunson and Dinwiddie have to raise their level of play, and this defense has to tighten the screws. 
Yeah. Well, and you guys, I don't think you guys have even touched on this in really any shape or form, but you're just not going to make this a series if you're going to get out-rebounded by 15 rebounds every game. Exactly. Um, they, they've had, they had no presence around the rim at all last night. Um, and when you're, you know, Luca was 10 for 25 until the last couple of minutes. He made his last five shots to, to finish at 50% shooting for the night. But when you're taking that many three-pointers and you're shooting from that far out and missing as much as the Mavericks were, there better be somebody around the boards. Well, they got out-rebounded by the Jazz as well. The difference I thought was really big in this game was they gave up 13 offensive rebounds. And so and when you're giving that many second-chance points to these guys, they, they just have too many good shooters, and they take good shots. You know, they don't they don't rely on, on uh, shooting three-pointers like the Mavericks do. And it's just, you know, you're going to hit a higher percentage of those shots, and when you can do the the, the – the things that they do, and then you play, then they play really good defense as well. Uh, that's just a pretty great combination, and that's why they're the best team in the NBA. You know, even late when uh, Dallas was was making a run, and and you still didn't get the sense they had enough to come back to win the game. But I think they were within like seven to eight points, and they were on a, a significant run. Phoenix comes down. And they had three offensive rebounds in one possession after mm-hmm. Dallas had played good extended defense, was finally getting some good shots and getting some good ball movement. And, and that just that just killed them. But but again, I, I didn't think Dallas was going to win that game. But but, you know, Phoenix just reasserted what it did early in the game, which is we're going to hammer you on the boards. You know, your, your strength is going small. So we're going to. We're going to make you pay for going to your strength. And that's the thing about Phoenix. They they can throw multiple looks at a team much more than Dallas can. Yeah, right. the, the Suns The Suns set the tone last night. The Mavericks are going to have to adjust. And, and that, I think, is where in game two you're really going to get a feel for this series. I don't, I'm not surprised Phoenix won last night. I'm not surprised Phoenix won kind of, I don't want to say going away, but they, that they won pretty much wire to wire. But now it's up to Jason Kidd and his team to make some adjustments. And that, I think, will dictate whether or not this becomes a series. Did you say sunset on purpose? Yes. Sunset. Okay. All right. Uh, so that's going to do it for our, our maps portion of this. And let's let's hope that the uh, maps are still around uh, to do for us to do another podcast on that. Well, we, we're going to wrap it up. We'll still be around. The franchise will franchise still be viable. Still going to be here. Think. Yeah. Well, you never can tell. Uh, <laughs> people get people get upset. <laughs> they lose and ship the franchise. <laughs> get out of, out of here. That's enough. Uh, the Cowboys, uh, I guess they, they had a draft last week, didn't they? Uh, they did. you were there. Yeah, I was there. That was fun. Uh, <laughs> you've already blocked it from your memory. Well, no, I, uh, it was, uh, it was really interesting to, as always, that's the great thing about the, the Cowboys, you know, love them or hate them. They're always great theater. And, uh, there's just, you just never can tell what Jerry's going to say when you get him out there and he's talking about these players and talking about what's going on so uh so let's just start right at the top uh, uh david what did you give the cowboys in this draft well i because again my my grades you know the, I, i've broken down all the tape I, i've spent a little bit more time than the entire <laughs> cowboys uh personnel department looking at these players uh i i gave i gave them a c plus and i really kind of had to talk myself into the plus and that was just from the standpoint of, look, I, I understand when you're drafting near the end of every round rather than the top of every round as they were last year, uh, it puts you in a much more difficult 
position. And everyone focuses on the first round, but it's throughout the draft. Uh, when you're at the bottom third of every round, you always get the sense that, well, a talent plateau is about to leave us, right? We're going to have to chase this player. You know, we really want a receiver, but if we don't take a receiver here at number 88, we don't pick again for another, you know, 30 picks. And so the receiver is going to be at that talent plateau is going to be gone. So we got to go for a receiver here. Uh, I I just got the sense that, that Dallas was constantly chasing positions of need in this draft where they were. And, um, while they addressed positionally what they needed to, uh, it was really with uh, with players that you know a lot of times seemed like uh, from what the consensus states was about a half a round or more ahead of where they should have been taken. So, you know, after two years of of doing such a good job in the draft and and uh, you know waiting and being patient for the players to come to them and making good picks, I, I just got a sense that this. They were trying to force the action a little bit here, and um, I, and and because of that, I I think this is a there are more risks associated with the players they took in this draft than you've seen this team take in recent years when it really has been an outstanding team in the draft. So to me, this was just a little uncharacteristic of what we've seen over the last seven or eight years, and for that reason, um, I, I gave them a lower grade than than normal. Which I'm sure really breaks them up. Yeah. Well, unless and, and I'm going to give that caveat as well as that you just did about grading these drafts. Listen, you, you know I haven't seen these guys play. Uh, I've just seen some of them play. You know, cursory games. Uh, you know, obviously they, they the Cowboys know a lot more about these players than we do. Uh, the thing is, is that what what I'm grading is how you play the game. How, how do you how are you playing in this draft? And just just what you said, there's a value in uh, in these consensus of the, all these mock drafts. And obviously, the Cowboys sometimes rank players higher than uh, than other organizations do. It's like they said with Tyler Smith; they said they had him the 16th best player in this draft. Uh, you know, Stephen Jones said that there was a team lower than the Cowboys that wanted to trade up with them. And he said, and he was told afterwards, it's a good thing y'all didn't trade with us because we were going to take Tyler Smith. Yeah, so, that was Tennessee. Yeah, that was Tennessee. Okay, so so if that if that's the case, then okay, you can you can make a case. And well, it's a good thing they didn't wait then because they you know that they could have taken Jermaine Johnson, uh, the defensive end from uh, Florida State, who fell uh, to uh, uh, right past them, two picks after them. He was considered in some in several drafts actually uh, a top fifteen pick, uh, a guy yeah. who was probably the third best defensive end in this draft. Uh, Devin certainly. Lloyd, a linebacker who was also in that range, went right after them. He was another player that was available there. Absolutely. So uh, it, it felt like in a, in what the Cowboys have been doing in these recent drafts, since Will McClay has been in charge of the war room, that, okay, a, a really good player falls to us, we're taking him. We're taking the best player. You, you cannot tell me that right now that Tyler Smith is a better player than Jermaine Johnson or Devin Lloyd. Uh, I just don't think that's the case. I think that – Long term, he may be, but perhaps if, if he turns in, I, I really feel like they think they're getting the next Tyron Smith. They're, they're drafting a guy who's very young, like Tyron was when he came out of college. Uh, he was also very young. Uh, he's he's a he's a tall, big man. Not a you know he's very well proportioned. This this is a guy who looks like a, a Tyron Smith starter kit. Uh, and if that's what they end up getting, well, then more power to him than they've done. They've done a fine job getting him because they wouldn't have gotten him in the second round right yeah 
Well, Jerry uh, Jones, yeah, and Jerry Jones declared that afterwards and saying that he thought the similarities were eerie between Tyler Smith and Tyrone Smith, uh, just their size and all this. And he made it very clear that they considered him to be the heir apparent to Tyron Smith at left tackle. But to play this year and to make an immediate impact, a college tackle who has never played guard in college who had 16 penalties in 12 games as a tackle because of fundamental and technical issues is going to move inside to guard and play a new position in the NFL. And how smoothly can you expect that to go? I'm just saying there's not a, it it could work out, but you can't say that, oh, this makes perfect sense. This is going to work out. This isn't a case where when you took, you know, Zach Martin, and you said, okay, well, this is a guy we're going to swing back out to tackle, but to get him on the field, we're going to put him at guard. And then he's so dominant, you go, well, let's just keep him at guard. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not the same situation. You're still projecting what Tyler Smith is going to become, and he could be a, an outstanding pick for Dallas. But whenever you hear a team talk about a high ceiling and the potential on your first-round pick, what does that really mean? That means his level of performance isn't where it should be based on where he was taken. Normally, you hear them take about a high ceiling and potential on on third, fourth round picks, right? Because, well, this is why we took him here. Uh, the sky's the limit on this guy. Um, th- there are a lot of traits to like about Tyler Smith, but he's a very raw player at this point. Yeah. I, I want to go across here the panel here and ask everybody who their favorite pick was, uh, the Cowboys, because I, I have one uh, in this draft. Evan, do you have a, uh, somebody that you like the best who, that the Cowboys took? Um, well, considering they were like the one team that didn't take anybody from Georgia, I, uh, <laughs> uh, not really. Um, I, I like what I've heard about Jalen Tolbert. Um uh, that's that's probably the guy who sticks out for me. I, listen, the way I looked at the Cowboys draft, I thought they did well in the third and fourth rounds. I'm not very um, high on the first and second rounds. A lot of what David said about the rawness of Tyler Smith, the penalty thing really concerns me. And I got to be honest, and I hate to sound like a snob here, but I, I just don't know that I'm going for an offensive lineman from from Tulsa. Um, I, I think that that programs in the big five, they're going to, pro- they're going to produce particularly at linemen. They're going to produce better, better prepared players for the NFL. So I had issues with, with one and, and the Sam Williams stuff about the off the field issues comes to me as kind of typically risky cowboy second round pick, but I, I do like Tolbert. And I think there, there may be some chemistry there that he and Dak can, can create pretty quickly. David, who was your who was your favorite? Uh, before I answer, I, I think Evan brought up a really good point about the Power Five teams and, and uh, Tyler Smith. You know, when you look at Dallas kind of resetting itself as a good drafting team, it goes back about seven or eight years when once Mil- Will McClay was in place. And one thing you've seen during that period was they would lean toward Power Five players. Um, you know, in a lot of cases, that was the tiebreaker uh, when, when they had a couple of guys on a plateau. And that's another example of how they didn't follow that in this draft. You know, they had nine picks. The first one, as, as Evan mentioned, uh, Tyler Smith out of Tulsa was not a power five player. Well, 
four players in this draft were not Power 5 players. And in the previous three drafts combined, they only took five players who weren't Power 5. So, you know, that shift in in their drafting, I, I think, correlates with them having better drafts. So you saw them jump off their template in this draft. And again, I think that speaks to drafting at the end of all these rounds and, uh, you know, taking – when you're taking non-Power 5 players, in my mind, you're taking more chances. So now instead of taking a chance on one non-Power 5 player in a draft, which they are two at the most, which is what they've done over the last six, seven years – now suddenly you have four non-Power 5 players in the draft. And I, I think it's very reasonable to expect you're not going to, you know, several of those guys aren't going to hit. So uh, I think that's a great point. And that's another way they diverted in this draft. And and I think they took assumed more risks than they have over the last seven to eight years. Um, since since uh, Evan already mentioned Tolbert, I, I think there's a very good chance he has the, the most impact statistically uh, in his rookie season. Um, I'll, I'll go with the tight end after that, Jake Ferguson. I, I, I think that when everyone's talking about, well, how do you replace Amari Cooper? And you, you know, you look at Jalen Tolbert and to me, Tolbert really replaces, um, you know, they're down the line receiver, not Amari Cooper, Cedric Wilson, who they lost. Um, but I, I think they, they're better in 12 personnel where they have two tight ends who are receiving threat, but, but can still block. Uh, I think they need to get the running game going. And I think Ferguson helps them do that, but it's enough of a receiving threat. Well, he's going to diversify this offense. So I'll, I'll go with Jake Ferguson is a, is a pretty good pick. All right. I'm going to say, uh, Damone Clark, the fifth rounder, the linebacker from LSU who probably won't play, at least half the season. I'm 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 saying probably plays less than that if he plays at yeah, all. I'm skeptical of that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh but he had a spinal fusion surgery for a herniated disc uh that was discovered after the season. Uh he was projected by some people to be a top forty pick, at the very least a third rounder. Uh and the Cowboys got him in the fifth. You know, the Cowboys love to take risks and they usually do that in the second round, which they, of course they did by taking Sam Williams, a guy with with risk associated with his off the field behavior. Um, but to me in the fifth round, you have multiple fifth round picks and you're getting a guy who might be uh, a really good linebacker. He might be the best player in this, uh, in this class. If he comes back and plays the way they, they think he could, uh, that's when you take a risk like that, uh, for me, it's really hard to find a guy capable of being a starter and a, and a good starter in the fifth round. So if you're taking a guy to potentially, if you, if you're going to be patient with him for a year, uh, this is this is to me the perfect kind of pick. So we'll see how that. Yeah, I pans thought you out. would go. I thought you would go Arkansas and John Ridgeway. No, not because of the the Arkansas. Both my girls, of course, went to Arkansas. My wife went to Arkansas. Uh, you know, but he was only kind of like guy. a part hog. He was only a one year hog. <laughs> yeah, he just a, a one year hog. hog. Not not a dyed in the wool hog. Uh, he was just he was an Illinois State guy. Uh, he, he's he's got a little bit of a. Uh, uh, he's got some ego. I'll say that told Jerry Jones, uh, you're going to draft me and I'm going to, I'm going to, what did he say? I'm going to fix the Cowboys or I'm going to, <laughs> yes, something like that. Hey, if he can fix the Cowboys, oh, let's make him president. <laughs> if he can do that. Oh my gosh. Uh, so we'll see what he does. Big. He's an awfully big guy. Six, what? Six, five, three forty one, something like that. Uh, yeah. he, he's a run stopper. That's what he's supposed to be. Listen, if he can stop the run, uh, then, 
that would be a huge uh, get uh, to get that out of a guy who was taken in the in the fifth round as well. Uh, He'll be a rotational guy with Bohanna. See, to me, that's that's what you got in this draft. You got rotational guys at best. I mean, he's going to be a rotational guy with Bohanna at that one technique or or the nose tackle. Um, You know, Jake Ferguson is not going to be your lead tight end, but he's going to be in your two tight end sets. Um, You know, uh, Tyler Smith, I think they're just going to have to wedge in as a starter. Uh, but Sam Williams, defensive end, he's going to be part of a rotation at defensive end with Dante Fowler, Dorrance Armstrong. So you got guys who are going to rotate in. And, you know, Jerry Jones, among the many comments he made was, he said he thought they would get as much um, impact out of this draft class as they, as they got out of last year's class. And even he, before you could respond, said, look, I know you guys are going to go, oh, my God, we got Micah Parsons last year. Well, it's hard for me to envision this class is going to have the same impact because you just go back. That class last year had 32 starts and had a total of 112 player games played out of that rookie class. I, I don't know that you're going to reach those numbers out of this class. Mm-hmm. No, you know, it, it, it smells a little bit of the, the famous uh, – we're, we're drafting for, for uh, backups here on 2009. Remember <laughs> yeah. that one? Where they didn't have a pick the special in the first teams or second draft. round? Yes. Yes. <laughs> and not – and boy, what a bad draft that was. I, I, I think it'll be better than that, uh, certainly, because for one thing, they had a first and second round pick. Uh, they didn't have either one of those. You know, you go back. I, I just have I have one question I want to leave this leave this draft stuff with. And, and that is I was clearly watching on TV. You guys were at Valley Ranch and I'm sure they had the TV on. But that was the star there, Evan, but not Valley uh, Ranch. the star. Yeah. yeah. Um, how how implanted in your brain? And I, I, I don't. I want to preface this by saying I never want Mel Kiper implant, implanted in my brain, but how implanted in your brain is the preconception that Tyler Smith is a quote unquote penalty waiting to happen? Well, even more so because if you're a Cowboy fan, because of coming off Connor Williams last year, right? Yeah. Um, so now you had, you already, as a fan, you're frustrated by what you saw from Connor Williams. And now you're saying his replacement is has the same reputation coming in. And, oh, by the way, he's going to be altering positions at the next level. So does that make you feel better about the number of penalties that are going to happen at the left guard? The, the yeah. penalty thing was really troublesome last year. And it just it, it, it doesn't seem like that's going to get better. Well, it's you know it's the same situation. Connor Williams was a tackle in, at Texas, yep. and so they made him into a guard, and then a guard who made a, uh, committed a lot of penalties. Uh, it's going to be the same thing with Tyler Smith. He's a tackle. He's not a guard. You know, he's an awfully tall guy, and I you know I think I just have a problem with taller guys trying to play guard, uh, and if, depending on how you're built, of course. Uh, but he's that, and he commits a lot of penalties. He just seems like. And instead of being a uh, Tyron Smith starter kit, he seems like a Connor Williams starter kit to me. Uh, oh, that, that one's going to stay in my brain too now. Yeah, don't don't, <laughs> don't want to do that. All well, right, he has good. the size, and when you look at the defensive tackles around the league, and look what Philadelphia did now, and who they put next to, uh, you know, Cox. I mean, they're they're just massive inside at defensive tackle, and a, and a lot of teams are. So you need that size in there, but. You also need good technique, you know, so we'll we'll see how this unfolds. And, you know, his aggression, his power and his size is something they like and you want that. And that's something to develop over time. But 
when a 37-yard touchdown run by Tony Pollard is called back because of poor technique, you know, how, how, how much does that size and physical aggression give you? So that, yeah. that's what, you know, we're, I, I think you're going to see more of, especially early in the season. We'll see how this all turns out, uh, of course, like we always do. Um, you know, that Will McClay has done a pretty good job since he's been in charge, and and so I give him the benefit of the, of the doubt on a lot of this. Uh, it just seems like you could have played the game a little bit better uh, because they were always chasing here, uh, and that was uncharacteristic of them in the last several years. But we'll, we'll see how it turns out. Yeah, to me, real quickly, I know we need to move on, but to me, they do deserve the – benefit of the doubt because of how well they have drafted consistently over the last seven to eight years but that doesn't mean you just rubber stamp this right i mean right. there there are some questions here that that need to uh that go against some of the successful drafts they've had so we have to see how this unfolds absolutely all right now we're going to move on to the Rangers, uh, who have actually been playing a little bit better lately. Took uh, the series against the Braves last weekend with some really nice uh, pitching performances by the starters, which was something that uh, we were not seeing early in the season. Uh, part of that was the uh, limited pitch counts uh, coming out of spring training. We knew that was going to happen. That happened across baseball. I think that the Rangers, it seemed like, uh, adhered to that a little more closely than anybody else. Uh, and we'll see if they were right to do that or not. Uh, but they are playing better. Uh, and then we're also going to talk about the fact that Willie Calhoun has been demoted and did not take that well, which shouldn't have been a surprise. He has never taken those types of things very well um, and has responded accordingly. So uh, anyway, Evan, let's start with the fact that uh, – that the it looks like now, and, and as we're taping this on Tuesday, uh, John Gray will be back uh, from uh, his second stint on the uh, injured list, uh, and uh, we'll see how he does uh, in this game uh, tonight against Philadelphia. Uh, but uh, we had really fine performance by Martin Perez, which is kind of piggybacking on the one before that. And also Taylor Hearn uh, bounced back with a nice game against the Braves. So, Evan, what about that rotation? Well, I, I think that it is kind of rounding out the way the Rangers expected. And uh, this was very noticeable in spring training that they were being very, very careful with these guys and they were erring on the side of caution. Um, I think the one thing that they didn't count on in this would be – the need for established bullpen arms to kind of get them through that first month if you were going to go that route with the starters. And so I think that kind of backfired on them a little bit. Uh, but I, I, I do think the starters have have been unleashed a little bit more. Dane Dunning was obviously able to go um, past 90 pitches for the first time as a Ranger on Saturday, uh, and he pitched very well. Uh, and And – Chris Woodward has said he's going to now – this would be the equivalent of if you had that three weeks of spring training and three weeks of the regular season, this is now the equivalent of when guys would really start a full-fledged regular season with their typical buildup. So guys could be on a 90-pitch count at this point in time. And and I think – I've thought all along that the Rangers were smart in that regard with their starters. I thought guys who were letting guys go four innings right out of the gate – um, in spring training, we're risking injuries, and I think that's come to fruition. But it's still, because of the lack of bullpen early on, 
And because this this bullpen couldn't hold some leads, I think it created something of a snowball effect that froze up the offense, and that negated some good pitching performances. I think over the last couple of days, what you've seen is things starting to even out a little bit more where things are where the the offense is 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 getting back to out of shock so to speak and the the pitching the pitching situation is stabilized a little bit i think that leads them into a position to be in much better shape going through may yeah i uh yeah, we, we've talked about this before, about the, the, they made a mistake with the bullpen to me. You know, that just seems a natural that if you if you were going into this season with a short pitch count for your starters, you're going to be taxing the bullpen right away. And that's why you're keeping extra arms, obviously, and that's why MLB allowed that to keep up, uh, up to 28 players. Uh, but uh, they need to be quality arms you just can't have arms they have to be there needs to be some quality arms in there and i don't think they really pursue that and you've made the case that they should have pursued jake diekman i think that would have made a big difference a guy like him uh and and you just needed a little bit more stability in the bullpen but they're now getting some of that from the from the starters uh you know i think the dane dunning thing with with the pitch count though of course precedes even this year last year they had him on a pitch count which he was frustrated by and which they felt like that was necessary uh, for him and his development, um, because of, uh, how many innings he had ramped up. Uh, so, uh, and I, I'm, I'm really intrigued by him. I think he's going to be a good pitcher. I don't know that he'll ever be, I think he could work his way up to a three maybe. Uh, and, uh, I think he's the kind of guy who, who gets a lot of ground balls, uh, and, uh, can be a very effective pitcher on a good team. Um, and, and we'll see what Taylor Hearn can do. You know, I thought it was interesting. The question about, you know, his velocity had gone down, uh, in his last couple of starts. And then you asked him, I believe, uh, after his last start against the Braves, uh, if that, had, you know, if he felt like there was anything there and, and he said, no. And then he's, then he turned around and said, yeah, I'm basically, you know, I just throwing the ball harder. <laughs> you know, so, uh, it, 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 it I think that the thing about Taylor is and what he has to learn uh, and, and which is always a little disconcerting is you, you want guys to come out there feeling like I'm obviously going to follow the game plan here, but also, you know, have a little, uh, be a little fearless, you know, uh, that's the thing about, you know, and backtracking to the Mavericks here, the thing about Luka Doncic is no matter how poorly he's playing, he is always fearless, you know, and that's what makes him, that's one of the things that makes him a great player. But so what makes all great players great is the fact that they go out there. I'm not going to, you know, especially as a starter, as a pitcher, I'm not going to nibble around the corners here. I'm not going to back off a little bit to make sure I get this pitch where I want it. It's you go up there and say, here's my stuff. See if you can hit it. Yep. Uh, the, yeah, there is that, that level of fearlessness is something that, that they clearly want, and um, I think that is something that they were struggling with with Taylor with the first couple starts, that they were concerned that he was maybe trying to conserve energy or conserve stuff to go deeper into games. And the Rangers want these guys to go out there and, and, and attack from the start on both sides, on offense and on the mound. Go out there and attack, and in the pitcher's case, when it's time to come get you, Chris Woodward will come get you. But – Go out there and attack, and don't don't try and game plan out too much to say, okay, I got to save something to get these guys out a third time around. You, you worry about getting that guy out that point in time. 
Yeah, and, and so speaking of that and that mentality and how you how you're approaching the game, I want to switch over now to the the situation with Willie Calhoun, who was demoted. Um, and I guess we could see that coming. Uh, I know that Willie, if you look at the advanced metrics, had some bad luck this year. He hit some balls hard that, uh, that, uh, you know, normally would have been in play and, and, uh, would have affected his average. But, uh, I also, and, and listen, Willie's a great kid. Uh, uh, and I think he always, you know, he obviously wants to be a great player. I don't know that, He's always been committed to it. I, I still struggle with the fact that that you know we know the stories about Willie when he first came up and staying up all night playing video games, bad diet, you know, all, all the things that were just signs of immaturity and not realizing what the things you have to do to become a better player. But because of all of those things, whether he can control them all or not, he is a one-dimensional player. He either he hits or he doesn't play at all because he is a he is not. He is a minus defensive player in the outfield. Doesn't run well. Uh, you know the, the the play the other day when he was at third base and did not score on the ground ball to the right side where he didn't even run. Uh, another indication of that. These are things that uh, you, you have to be the kind of player. You have to be a smart player. Uh, I, I mean, Kevin, when you talk about fearlessness. Um, there were that case with Willie at third base was was certainly an example of that. Everybody uh, in the Rangers offices that went back and looked at video saw a guy whose first move was back towards first but towards third base when in fact, you know, he was being given home plate because the, the first baseman was playing back. They were surrendering the run, and that's that's exactly a case of I don't want to make a mistake here, so uh, I'm going to err on the side of caution. And the Rangers needed that run to score. So, yeah, I think that was a big factor. Um, if you go back and look at Willie, going back, uh, even including 2019, which was his big year, uh, he's a minus 1.4 war player, according to fan graphs. And that's 268 of 272 in, in the big leagues in, in that point of time. He is a one-dimensional player. He's got to hit. And so there's less margin for error there. So even if he's having some bad luck, and I, I think the Rangers' perspective is, yeah, there was some bad luck, but there was also a lot of ground balls on the right side, which we're trying to get away from, and a lot of soft fly balls that not what we're preaching. So um, he's got to perform. It just comes down to strict performance with him. And it's not, you know, there's no sliding scale there. There's nothing that makes it more complicated like you would have with a guy like Eli White. Well, Eli can run. Eli can play some defense. He doesn't have to hit as much. In Willie's case, he's got to hit. And if he doesn't hit, he doesn't have value, not just to this club, but but to no club. And I think that's the thing that, that, that Willie has to realize is he's got to find a way to hit. Because if he doesn't, he just not, doesn't have a big league career. So I want to go back to to the trade when the when the Rangers made that with the uh, the Dodgers and of course Willie was the main piece coming back uh, in the U Darvish trade. Um, we'll we'll see how that all pans out. AJ Alexi is still around. Uh, we'll see if he ever pans out. Uh, I, I'm not saying that the Rangers uh, needed to get something back and then that was a a bad trade because you know Darvish's career has been up and down ever since uh, he left. Uh, uh, the Rangers. Um, but it, it points to, uh, at that point anyway, you, you took a guy with a very limited skill set. Basically, 
he can hit, he can't do anything else. Uh, and, and certainly you could say, well, then that he could be a DH. Um, well, he's had some bad luck, got hit in the face by a pitch, got hit in the arm. Uh, th- those are a couple of things beyond his control. Um, uh, but he is, uh, he is a symbol to me of what the Rangers were as, as he was with Joey Gallo who, and, the, and it kind of ironic that they were such good buddies uh, with the Rangers, two guys who really never embra- could embrace what it was the Rangers wanted to do. Not that they refused to do that. They just struggled to really adapt to what the Rangers are trying to do now. I think they struggle to do what baseball asked them to do. Um, they have, They've had different hitting instructors. They've had different f- philosophers um, preaching to them. A- and the bottom line is these guys just have to hit. It doesn't matter which way they do it. It doesn't matter. Um, uh, the Rangers have had a number of different hitting instructors. They've got to just simply find a way to get results. And I think what Chris Woodward and, and the front office would much prefer would be, okay, if you're not getting results your way, then at least – put faith in our guys and abandon your vulnerabilities and just do what our guys ask you to do. And let's see if that actually does produce a solution for you. Yeah. I, I think that that's going to be difficult. You know, it, it's always difficult to, to, you know, reshape guys and get them to do things. And I always go back to what Rudy Jaramillo said that, you know, by the time these guys get to the big leagues, you know, I just tried to refine what they do best and uh, because it's difficult to get guys to change something when they've been doing it their whole lives. It got them to the big leagues, you know, what they were doing. And so they have a difficult time. Uh, most players have a difficult time doing that. And I and I understand that. You know, I, I get it. I understand where they're coming from. But when it's not working, when what you're doing is not working, then clearly you need to do something else. Uh, and, and that is the case – of Willie. It's the case with Joey Gallo. It's a, it's a case of a lot of those old Rangers. And, and that's why, you know, it kind of goes back to the old thing about, we had about the, the Mavericks being, they wanted to be a better defensive team. Well, then you go out and get better defensive players. Well, they were a, actually able to kind of turn around their defense with essentially the same cast. Uh, we'll see if the, the Rangers can do this. Uh, they went out and got two of the best hitters in baseball who've not actually got out to that kind of start. Uh, when with the Rangers in there uh, this season, but uh, I, I have confidence that they will eventually. Just uh, that Corey Seager, Marcus Simeon, and, and even Mitch Garver will all eventually hit. That's what their track record says. They are hitters, and so I, I think that will happen. They have to develop more across the board, though, uh, and that is going to be an, an issue for the for the Rangers going forward. I, I, I agree, Kevin. I mean, I think you summed it up really well. Um, so let, let's look at, at uh, I, w- I want to talk about one last uh, thing here before we get out of here. And that's, that's always, uh, one of my, uh, most intriguing and, and favorite players, Adolis Garcia. Uh, I, I, I pull for Adolis, you know, I don't really pull for many athletes and, and not, and really shouldn't, uh, but it's hard not to, it's a guy who, uh, was abandoned by the Cardinals and then the Rangers picked him up and he's what, 28 years old when he makes his debut, really, and and uh, and it came out last year and was just an unbelievable player. Plays with a lot of guts, plays with a lot of heart. Uh, and uh, do you do you see? I mean, is you know, he is a guy who's trying to make adjustments and clearly is not chasing the ball n- pitches nearly as much as he did last year. Uh, it's come with some mixed results so far. What what do we what do you think? 
is is the projection for Adolis at this point. He's he's not going to be the guy. He's not going to hit forty home runs. Uh, is he going to be able to hit twenty five home runs and have an eight hundred OPS? Is is that in his future, or, or what? What do you think is going to happen with him? Well, I think the OPS uh, uh, to get the OPS to eight hundred, I think he's probably going to have to have you know a three thirty or so on base percentage. I, I I think that's going to be a little bit of a struggle for him. We'll see how long he can keep up the the plate discipline he showed. But Kevin, you know, one thing that that Chris Woodward talks about is there's there's he kind of almost demonstrates it with a swinging pendulum kind of thing. You know, you talk to guys about wanting them to be more disciplined at the plate and hitting pitches in their lanes. Um, and so guys take that as, okay, I'm going to take a, I'm, I'm going to take a pitch here. And then guys have to realize, well, maybe the first pitch is the one that I I'm going to get that is in my hitting lane and I need to be ready to attack that. And I think Adolis is a little bit, you know, still adjusting back and forth, what I do think he's shown is a pretty good aptitude and fearlessness, to, to use the word of the day, um, to a, to take on these projects. And so I, I guess my feeling is that I think whatever he's capable of as a big leaguer, I think he's got a better chance at, at maximizing that because of his approach, because of his fearlessness. And maybe it comes with being a guy who got to the big leagues later on that he's basically said, I'm just going to go out and be me and do what I do best uh, and play the game the way I like to. So uh, will he will he be an 800 OPS guy? I, I don't know. But I think that, again, given, given the energy, which you can't really quantify, um, the defensive abilities – the throwing ability and the running ability, you know, he can be a plus player for you if he's a league average type type offensive player. Yeah, I think that will be interesting to watch that this year and what happens in the decisions they make going forward, uh, uh, and the you know how Leody Tavares uh, continues to do. Uh, he's off to a very good start. Uh, I- so, Kevin, you mentioned Leody Tavares, and I think that that that's a key to Willie Calhoun now is he's going to have to go down there and out hit Leody Tavares. Leody's hitting 375 at AAA, and there's no question that Leody's a better defensive player, that he offers more on the base pass. And so this is this is the crossroads I think Willie Calhoun is at, is he's he's fixing to potentially slip behind the prospect now uh, in the Rangers' pecking order. So – uh, he better go down to AAA and hit if he wants to play in this organization or any organization going forward. No question about that. All right, that's going to do it for this week's uh, podcast. We appreciate you all coming in. Be sure to come back next week when we'll be able to have a better feel about where the Mavericks are, if they're still in the playoffs at that point. Um, we're going to have a better feel about whether the Rangers can sustain uh, what they have done over the weekend against the Braves. And we're going to have a, a better feel of what the the Cowboys may be pursuing in free agency. We didn't even really get to talk about that. Uh, there are some names still out there, guys who could fill roles. A guy like, oh, Emmanuel Sanders as a wide receiver, former SMU wide receiver. And also a guy like Kevin King, a cornerback that played for Mike McCarthy with the Packers. We'll see if they're going to spend any money and uh, and try to fill some some holes that they didn't fill in the draft. So from everybody in here to everybody out there, thanks, and we'll see you next time.